0: the readings I've given from my book, Bone Antler Stone, will remember that that book is comprised of poems that take place in prehistoric Europe. And following the way that these things usually go, um, I was wondering what I would get down to writing in 2022. And it suddenly occurred to me, why don't I go back there? Not just to prehistoric Europe, but just the beginning of humanity as a whole, and write a series of poems uh, about evolution, or what we know about evolution. And I went back to the books that I read about 10 years ago now, and found some wonderful passages in them, and I want to share a few of those today. this first uh, bit that I will share, that, that I'll read from tonight, concerned three important revolutions in what became human beings, anatomically modern human beings, as opposed to uh, just apes millions of years ago. And the three things that I want to read from are the evolution of bipedalism, that is, walking on two feet, the earliest human communities, and the uh, the evolution of language, and that takes us roughly, I think, from about four million years ago to maybe fifty thousand years ago, and I'm pretty sure that, yeah, all of these passages come from an amazing book that anyone out there should uh, go ahead and buy after they listen to this episode and that is uh, the book called The Prehistory of the Mind by Stephen Mithen. And even though uh, what he says, I think his this book was published in the late 90s, even though some of the ideas have been um, not changed or rejected, but just added to, they've they've had growths added onto them, that kind of a thing, it is still worth reading and then spending a little bit of time, if you find a handful of details that you want to know more about, uh, a quick Google search will show you uh, where these ideas have gone in the last 20 or 30 years. So if we get to walking on two feet, the evolution of bipedalism, and um, I don't know how it's taken almost 230 episodes for me to read from some books about science, but here we go. This is amazing stuff. Stephen Mithin writes this about what it was like when uh, human beings or our ancestors, three and a half million years ago, were suddenly found themselves not living in trees all the time, but of spending more time on the ground and eventually walking on two feet. The evolution of bipedalism had begun by three and a half million years ago. Evidence for this is found in the anatomy of A. afarensis and, more dramatically, in the australopithecine footprints preserved in Letoli in Tanzania. The most likely selective pressure causing the evolution of bipedalism was the thermal stress suffered by Australopithecines when foraging in the wooded savannas of East Africa. With their tree-climbing and tree-swinging ancestry, the Australopithecines had a body already conditioned for an upright posture. The anthropologist Peter Wheeler has shown that by adapting bipedalism, Australopithecines could achieve a 60% reduction in the amount of solar radiation they experienced when the sun was overhead. Moreover, the energetic costs of locomotion would have been reduced. Bipedalism enabled Australopithecines to forage for longer periods without the need for food and water, to forage in environments which had less natural shade, and thus allowed them to exploit foraging niches not open to other predators, who were more heavily tied to sources of shade and immediate water. The shift to increasingly efficient bipedalism may have been partly related to the environmental change to more arid and open environments that occurred in Africa around 2.8 million years ago, increasing the value of reducing exposure to solar radiation by adopting an upright posture. Bipedalism also required a larger brain for the muscle control needed for balance and locomotion. But bipedalism and a terrestrial lifestyle, that is, a lifestyle spent on the ground and not in the trees, had several other consequences for brain enlargement. Some of these have been discussed by the anthropologist Dean Falk. She explains how a new network of veins covering the brain must have been jointly selected for, with bipedalism, to provide a cooling system for the brain, or a, quote, radiator, as she describes it. Once in place, the constraint of overheating on further expansion of the brain was relaxed as this radiator could easily be modified. Consequently, the possibility, not necessity, arose of further brain enlargement. Dean Falk also suggests that bipedalism would have led to a reorganization of the neurological connections within the brain. Once feet had become weight bearers for walking instead of graspers, a second pair of hands, areas of the cortex previously used for foot control were reduced, thus freeing up the cortex for other functions. This, of course, went with the freeing of the hands, providing opportunities for enhanced manual dexterity, for carrying and and later for tool making. There may also have been significant changes in the perception of the natural environment, due to an increase in the distances and the directions regularly scanned, and a change in the social environment by an increase in face-to-face contact enhancing the possibilities for communication by facial expression. Perhaps the most significant consequences of bipedalism, however, is that it facilitated the exploitation of a scavenging niche, a scavenging niche. A quote, window of opportunity was opened to exploit carcasses during periods of the day when other carnivores needed to find shade. As Leslie Ayello and Peter Wheeler have discussed, with an increasing amount of meat in the diet, the size of the gut could be further reduced, releasing more metabolic energy to the brain while maintaining a constant basal metabolic rate. And in this way, a further constraint on the enlargement of the brain was relaxed. The main selective pressures for brain enlargement no doubt continued to come from the social environment, the spiraling pressures caused by socially clever individuals creating the selective pressure for even more social intelligence and their companions. And this pressure itself was present due to the need for large social groups that a terrestrial lifestyle in an open habitat required, partly as a defense against predators confirmation of the importance of the social environment for the expansion of brain size was found in an earlier chapter. As we saw in that chapter, it is clear that the Oldowan stone tools of the early Homo demanded more knowledge to make than those which chimpanzees use today, and therefore those likely to have been used by Australopithecines. But this knowledge probably arose from the enhanced opportunities for social learning in larger groups rather than as a consequence of selection for a domain of technical intelligence. Similarly, the narrow range of environments exploited by early Homo suggests that a discrete domain of natural history intelligence had not yet evolved and that the information requirements for scavenging were also being met as the byproduct of living in larger social groups. In my in my reconstruction of the evolution of the mind, I only found the first evidence for distinct domains of natural history and technical intelligence at 1.8 to 2.4 million years ago, with the appearance of Homo erectus and the technically demanding hand axes. What were the causes? conditions, and consequences for these new domains of intelligence. The ultimate cause for these new specialized intelligences was the continuing competition between individuals, the cognitive arms race that had been unleashed when the constraints on brain enlargement had been relaxed. But the evolution of these specific intellectual domains may well reflect the appearance of a constraint on any further enhancement of social intelligence. As Nicholas Humphrey noted, there must surely come a point when the time required to solve a social argument becomes insupportable. And so, just as the possibilities of increasing reproductive success by enhancing general intelligence alone by natural selection had been exhausted by 3.5 million years ago, we might also conclude that the path of least resistance for a further evolution of the mind, in the conditions existing at two million years ago, lay not in enhanced social intelligence, but in the evolution of a new cognitive domain, natural history and technical intelligence. In other words, those individuals gaining most reproductive success were the ones who were most efficient at finding carcasses and other food resources, and most able to butcher them. These individuals gained a better quality of diet and spent less time exposed to predators on the savanna. As a result, they enjoyed a better state of health, they could compete more successfully for mates, and they produced stronger offspring. With regard to tool making, behavioral advantage was gained by those individuals who were able to have ready access to suitable raw materials for removing meat and breaking open bones, the bones of a carcass. The advantages of artifacts, such as hand axes, may well have been that they could be carried as raw material for flakes, as well as used as a butchering tool themselves. Experimental studies have repeatedly shown that they are very efficient general-purpose tools. Bipedalism the scavenging niche, the existence of raw materials, the competition from other carnivores, these were all conditions that enabled the enhanced intellectual abilities at tool-making and natural history to be selected for. Had just one of these conditions been missing, we all might still be living on the savannah. Just as the tree-living ancestry of the Australopithecines Enabled bipedalism to evolve, so too did bipedalism itself make possible the evolution of an enhanced vocalization capacity in early Homo, and particularly Homo erectus. This has been made clear by Leslie Aiello. She has explained how the upright posture of bipedalism resulted in the descent of the larynx, which lies much lower in the throat than and that of apes. A spin-off, not a cause, of the new position of the larynx, was a greater capacity to form the sounds of vowels and consonants. In addition, changes in the pattern of breathing associated with bipedalism will have improved the quality of sound. Increased meat-eating also had an important linguistic spin-off, since the size of teeth could be reduced thanks to the greater ease of chewing meat and fat, rather than focusing on large quantities of dry plant material. This reduction changed the geometry of the jaw, enabling muscles to develop, which could make the fine movements of the tongue within the oral cavity necessary for the diverse and high-quality ranges of sounds required by language. And that comes from... Stephen Mithen, The Prehistory of the Mind The Cognitive Origins of Art and Science excuse me, pages 204 to 207 and 208 and here is another excerpt from that same book on the earliest human communities and he has this to say there is a good there is good circumstantial evidence that Homo habilis 2.1 to 1.5 million years ago, would have been living in larger groups than his ancestors. If we again look at modern primates, there appear to be two ecological situations in which primates choose to live in larger groups and suffer the accompanying social changes. One of these is when they face a high risk from predators. In that case, it it is better to be with some friends, because then you can work together to fend off an attack. Or failing that, you might hope that the attacker will eat one of your friends rather than yourself. Now we know that our earliest ancestors did become the prey of carnivores. We have skulls pierced with the teeth marks of leopards to prove it. And we know that their predilection for morsels of meat from carcasses may have been pitting them against hyenas at just under 5 feet tall and 110 pounds in weight at most, and with no more than a few lumps of stone to throw, they were not particularly well equipped for hand-to-hand or hand-to-hyena combat. So, group living seems to have been a necessity for Homo habilis. The other ecological condition which favors group living is when food comes in large parcels that are irregularly distributed around the landscape. Finding these may not be easy, but once found, there is plenty of food to be had. So it is often beneficial to live within a relatively large group, search for food packages individually or in pairs, and then share the food with other group members. On the next day, it may be someone else who is the lucky one and finds the food. This scenario is likely to apply to Homo habilis searching for carcasses on the savannas of East Africa two million years ago. We have, therefore, good ecological criteria for believing that Homo habilis would be choosing to live in relatively large groups, and that their large brain size implies. That they had the social intelligence to do so. In other words, the enlarged brain of the Homo habilis suggests that the domain of social intelligence has by this time become yet more powerful and complex. What might the new elements have been? We can only speculate, but one possibility is that they could cope with more orders of intentionality than could their chimpanzee-like ancestors. Orders of intentionality is a term that the philosopher Daniel Dennett introduced to help us think about how social intelligence works. If I believe you to know something, then I can cope with one order of intentionality. If I believe that you believe that I know something, then I can cope with two orders of intentionality. If. I believe that you believe that my wife believes that I know something. Then I can cope with three orders of intentionality. We modern humans regularly encounter three orders of intentionality. Or at least we do if we believe soap operas, which often revolve around beliefs of what others believe a third party believes, and which often turn out to be false beliefs. Five orders of intentionality seem to be our limit but under the best of conditions chimpanzees are likely to manage just two orders of intentionality perhaps the new architecture features in the chapel of social intelligence had increased this three or four had increased this to three or four in early homo and that comes from the same book pages 107 to 108 i'm not sure if this strikes anyone out there as being um dry uh, to me this is immensely exciting stuff and is as uh, as propulsive I guess you would say as the best poetry and at least in my mind as I'm reading this I'm wondering how will I turn this into poetry um, it's also striking that when we when we go back in history and we imagine or theorize using the evidence of fossils, um, what it was like to do, the, to do the things that we take for granted right now. Uh, what I am doing right now, standing upright and holding a phone in my hand, um, living in a community, uh, semi-peacefully or usually peacefully, uh, being able to look someone in the face and gauge their emotions or their reactions having this kind of knowledge, uh, being able to use language and to respond to language. When we, um, and in one of Stephen Mithin's other books, the question is how, how much the invention of language had to do with, uh, the invention of music, which also leads to other forms of art and expression and communal experience and all of that. Um, so for me, when, I, when we look back at these basic things, these things that uh, a newborn will have picked up on uh, roughly in the first few years of their life, I'm kind of in awe and kind of ashamed in a way with what humanity does every day to these basic gifts, especially being that this is a podcast the gifts of language and expression and communication. It seems to me that uh, our ancestors uh, from millions of years ago or just 50,000 years ago didn't spend all their time learning these things so that we might one day have cable news and Twitter or whatever uh, versions of those we would uh, wish didn't have so much influence these days. But this is the last section. This is where he talks about the evolution of language itself. And he says this. The anthropologist Robin Dunbar looked at the size of the brain of Homo habilis 2.1 to 1.5 million years ago from a very different perspective. Recall that we have already referred to his work Regarding the relationship between brain size and group size, living within a larger group requires more brain processing power to keep up with the ever-changing sets of social relationships. When living in groups, primates have to transfer information between each other, and the principal way they do this is by grooming each other's bodies, in other words, picking out all the fleas and the lice. Who one chooses to groom, how long one grooms, and who you let watch while you do it, function as much to send social messages as to get rid of parasites. In the Burgers Zoo chimpanzee groups that we looked at in the previous chapter, grooming between males reached a peak when their relationships were unstable. Grooming sessions among the males lasted nine times as long in periods when there was an estrus female in the group, and a scholar named De suggests that grooming may amount to, quote, sexual bargaining. Dunbar found that as, a group, as group size increases, so too does the amount of time that primates spend grooming. This is not because there are more lice about, but because one has to invest more and more time In social communication. But grooming is time-consuming, and there are other things to do, such as finding food to eat. And Dunbar reckons that the longest any primate can afford to groom others is about 30% of its time budget. Once above that limit, the individual may be a mastermind at social relationships, but also be very hungry and lack the energy to exploit this knowledge to his or her social advantage. So what can be done when group size is so large that even spending 30% of one's time grooming leaves one ignorant of many important social relationships within the group? Well, maybe another means for transferring social information could be used, or in evolutionary terms would be selected for. Dunbar suggests that the other means, selected for, is language. He argues that language evolved to provide a means for exchanging social information within large and socially complex groups, initially as a supplement to grooming, and then finally as a replacement for it. Language can do this because it is a much more efficient way of transferring information. An ambidextrous chimp may be able to groom two of his mates at once, but An articulate human can chat away to anybody who is listening. Aiello and Dunbar concluded that the basis of the language capacity appeared early in the evolution of the genus Homo, at least by 250,000 years ago. A critical feature of their argument is that the subject matter of the earliest language was social interaction. It was, in effect, a, quote, social language. There was thus a coevolution of increasing group size slash social intelligence and a capacity for language. Evidence for this may indeed be found in the structure of the brain. The prefrontal cortex is not only the area of the brain responsible for many aspects of language, but also that that where the ability to reflect on one's own and other people's mental states, which I have argued is a central fact of social intelligence, are found. The general purpose character of language, as we know it today, and its symbolic features evolved, Ayello and Dunbar argued, at a later date, although how much later is left unclear in their work. On a far more intuitive basis, It is indeed difficult to imagine how an early human could have had a brain size equivalent to that of ourselves today, but lacked a linguistic capacity. Further support for a linguistic capacity can be found by looking at the shapes of the early human brain as reconstructed from the bumps on the insides of their crania. We saw in chapter six that Homo habilis appears to have had a well-developed Broca's area, which is conventionally associated with speech. Broca's area also appeared well-formed on the Homo erectus cranium uh, found in Kenya, a particularly well-preserved 12-year-old boy, which dated to 1.6 million years ago, and was found at East Turkana in Kenya. With regard to more recent early humans, paleontologists have argued that the brain shape is practically identical to that of modern humans. Ralph Holloway in particular has argued that both Broca's and Wernicke's areas can be identified on Neanderthal brain casts and that they show no difference from their appearance on the brains of modern humans. A third source of evidence for a linguistic capacity Is the nature of the vocal tract in early humans. There has been a long history of efforts at reconstructing the vocal tract, particularly for Neanderthals. Since it is principally composed of soft tissue, the larynx and pharynx, one must rely on consistent relationships between the organization of soft tissue and those parts of the cranium that can survive in an archaeological context. The most recent reconstructions imply that the Neanderthal vocal tract would not have differed significantly from that of modern humans. Neanderthals, in other words, would have had essentially modern powers of vocalization and speech. This supposition has received support from the discovery of a hyoid bone surviving in a Neanderthal skeleton buried in the Kabara cave in Israel and dated to 63,000 years ago. The hyoid bone, the hyoid is a bone that can provide detailed information about the structure of the vocal tract. Its movement affects the position and movement of the larynx to which it is attached. That found at Kabara, lying in an undisturbed position, with the mandible and cervical vertebra is virtually identical to that of a modern human with regard to its shape, muscular attachments, and apparent positioning. This implies that the morphology of the vocal tract of the Neanderthal was not significantly different from that of modern humans. If the cognitive capacity for language was present, there appears no reason why the full range of human sounds could not have been produced. Of course, the if" in the last statement is a rather big if. On purely logical grounds, however, it would be a little odd if Neanderthals had the vocal structure but not the cognitive capacity for speech. And again, what I've read to you uh, tonight comes from Stephen Mithen's book, The prehistory of the mind, the cognitive origins of art and science. And as I begin to turn this material into poetry, somehow, we'll see how that happens, Um, I hope to share more of this stuff with you uh, later on this year. Any comments?